You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 63. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Welcome back for the debrief. Today we're going to get back into our friend Friedrich Nietzsche, old Freddy. Because on my way home from training with my coach this morning, I started to think on something that came up in the podcast last week in relation to Fight Club, which is the question of freedom and the modern conception of freedom, at least in the United States, is particularly stilted in one direction toward freedom from, freedom from others, freedom from responsibility and consequences, freedom from making mistakes, freedom from failure, freedom from success rather than a more pre-modern understanding of freedom, which is freedom for, not freedom from. If you look at pre-modern society, the attitude that we are here on earth to escape from others, to get distance between ourselves and others, and to live only for ourselves is anathema. It is a vice. It is a sin. But in modern society, it is a virtue. It is what makes one a saint, so to speak. It is the pursuit of a pure, perfect, ideal lifestyle to live free from others. But again, in pre-modern society, the whole reason that we exist, as Marcus Aurelius notes in his meditations, is for others. We are made to care for and love others, to serve others, to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the other. As we've discussed on the show before, in tribal societies, if one person in the tribe did not follow through on their vocational responsibilities, the entire tribe suffered. There was no room for hyper-individuality within the tribal society because that kind of attitude could cause all of us to suffer, to struggle hardship, to be afflicted, possibly be overrun by another tribe. And ultimately, it could actually cut off our future. It could mean that the end, the death of the tribe. And so in relation to this, then I think I often struggle in my relationships to other people with the push and the pull, the tension of wanting to be free from this person. Maybe I just don't like their energy. I don't like the way that they train or I don't like their attitude. I don't like how they behave. I disagree with how they discipline their children. And I want to be disentangled from having to interface with them. I don't want to be in relation to them. I don't want to be acquainted with them. I don't like them. Versus, okay, but what can I do for them? Is there anything that I can do for them? Can I serve them in such a way that I help and improve their life, hopefully causing them to recognize this is probably not the best way to discipline your children. This is probably the nest, not the best attitude to have when you're around other people. It's like the people you meet who are immediately pessimistic, negative. What did Jordan Peterson call it? It's a comfortable contempt, is what Jordan Peterson calls it. That anything that you are introduced to that you are not familiar with, not knowledgeable about, not adept at, you immediately have contempt for it. You show contempt for it. The example he used is someone who works 
and owns a small business might have contempt for someone in academia, in their ivory tower. But likewise, the person in the ivory tower, the professor, might have contempt, a comfortable contempt for the small business owner. And so neither one of them is open to learning from the other person because both have this comfortable contempt for the other. And therefore, they don't believe the other has anything to teach them or show them. There's nothing to gain from entering into a relationship or interfacing with this person. And I think when we have this comfortable contempt for each other, we abuse our freedom and we don't use it for its intended purpose, which is to live for the other, to serve the other, to be charitable, kind toward the other, even possibly fighting against and being antagonistic toward the other. Because if we go back to Bushido, if we go back to the Hagakure, if we go back to Bushido and Christianity, this whole matter of honor and integrity in the warrior ethos, that you don't pick enemies that are beneath you. You look for an enemy that in any other circumstance you would be proud to call your friend. We don't do that in the present tense. I don't think people have ever striven to do that in mass. It's usually an individual thing or this little group over here like the samurai. But even within the samurai, how many samurai adhered strictly to the Hagakure? They adhered strictly to the code of Bushido and only chose for themselves enemies that were worthy in different circumstances of being called friend. How often then do we abuse our friends and our family, our neighbors, our peers, our classmates and colleagues, our teammates? How often do we take for granted and pervert our relationships because we care so much about ourselves and what we are getting out of this exchange, that we forget that that's the opposite, that's a contradiction of the whole reason that we're here in the first place. So that being said, then I thought, in The Twilight of the Idols, Nietzsche actually writes about this. He calls it my conception of freedom. And I thought, what a better place to start, what better person to start with than our old friend Freddie, and ask him, do you have anything to say about freedom to postmodern individuals? So this is what he writes, and I'll let you make up your mind whether he hits it or not. The value of a thing sometimes does not lie in that which one attains by it, but in what one pays for it, what it costs us. I shall give an example. Liberal institutions cease to be liberal as soon as they are attained. Later on, there are no worse and no more thorough injurers of freedom than liberal institutions. Their effects are known well enough. They undermine the will to power. They level mountain and valley and call that morality. They make men small, cowardly, and hedonistic. Every time, it is the herd animal that triumphs with them. Liberalism, in other words, herd animalization The value of a thing sometimes does not lie in that which one attains by it. That is, I've got this trophy and I carry it around with me and it shows that I'm a champion and I expect it to be treated like a champion. And so the value of the trophy is in direct correlation to how I am treated by others who recognize me as a champion versus what did I have to pay for that? What did it cost me to 
have that championship trophy in my hands. So therefore, an institution to be truly a liberal arts institution or a classically liberal institution ceases to be free in the classical sense of liberality as soon as it is attained, as soon as it is bought and paid for. And therefore, there is no worse and no more injurious institution when it comes to freedom than the liberal institution which claims to be free but is really bought and paid for even though it claims to be a place for free thinkers, for the open dialogue and discussion of topics. But it actually indoctrinates you against free expression and against the free exchange of ideas because it has an agenda. It has donors. It has a board of directors. And their concern is not the free exchange of information, but their financial bottom line or their personal or group agenda because they call the shots, they run the show, they get to ultimately determine which curriculum is taught and which is not. They get to decide who is hired and who is not on the faculty. They hire the administration. The people with the money, the people with the power and influence ultimately decide how liberal a liberal institution is going to be. And so on the surface, yeah, it may advertise itself as a liberal arts university, a place where you can go and engage in the free exchange and debate of ideas. You can explore different topics, some taboo. But in reality, it's going to be the very opposite. As he notes, they are going to undermine the will to power, meaning the will to excel, to grow, to produce something beautiful and wonderful and amazing, to elevate yourself and to grow as a person in body, mind, and soul. That's not going to happen. That will is going to be ground into a nub. They level mountain and valley and call that morality. They're going to tear the earth apart and call it good. They're going to make men small, cowardly, and hedonistic. They're not concerned with spiritual matters. They're not concerned with their soul. They're not truly concerned with knowledge and understanding. They don't care about the free exchange and debate of ideas. They don't care about enlightenment. What do they care about? Wine, women, and song. Let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die. I spent 18 years in academia, as I've said before. And yeah, college campuses are some of the most hedonistic places you could ever be. <laughs> yeah, eat, drink, and be merry, wine, women, and song. That describes every college campus that I lived on. So in other words then, liberalism, the liberal institution, is really just another name for herd animalization, the common herd, slave morality, get along to go along. Everybody has to think the same, speak the same, act the same, march to the same beat of the drummer. So then he continues, these same institutions produce quite different effects while they are still being fought for. Then they really promote freedom in a powerful way. On closer inspection, it is war that produces these effects. The war for liberal institutions, which as a war permits illiberal instincts to continue. War educates for freedom. For what is freedom? That one has the will to assume responsibility for oneself. Think about that before I go on to the next sentence. Very simply, he asks, What is freedom? 
answer that one, that a person, a man or a woman has the will to assume responsibility for one's self. And by will, he means choice. That a person has the choice to assume responsibility for him or herself. That's freedom. Take away a person's choice to assume responsibility for him or herself. You've taken away their freedom. It's just that simple. It doesn't have to be debated. We don't have to devote tens of thousands of words to the argument or the definition or clarifying or explaining freedom. Freedom is simply that one has the will to assume responsibility for oneself. But then he continues. So what is freedom? What is freedom for? That one has the will to assume responsibility for oneself. That one maintains the distance which separates us. That one becomes more indifferent to difficulties, hardships, privation, even to life itself. That one is prepared to sacrifice human beings for one's cause, not excluding oneself. Freedom means that the manly instincts, which delight in war and victory, dominate over other instincts. For example, over those of pleasure. The human being who has become free, and how much more the spirit who has become free, spits on the contemptible type of well-being dreamed of by shopkeepers, Christians, cows, females, Englishmen, and other Democrats. The free man is a warrior. <laughs> That's juicy. <laughs> That's great. Oh, it's iced coffee season in the Riley house. There is just nothing better than cold coffee, cold pressed coffee in the afternoon after lunch. But I digress. <laughs> Let's run this down again because that's pretty dense. For what is freedom? One, that you have the will to assume responsibility for yourself. Two, that you maintain the distance which separates us. Meaning, you allow me to live in my freedom and make my choices as well. That you become more indifferent to difficulties, hardships, privation, even to life itself. You accept everything as gift. You accept everything for what it is rather than what you would have it be. Even difficulties, hardships, and deprivation. Even life itself. You accept this is life. This is difficult. This is a hardship. This is causing me deprivation. Now, what choice am I going to make? What choices do I have that I can make? Am I going to accept this difficulty? Am I going to be overcome and defeated by this difficulty? Can I overcome this difficulty? Do I have that choice available to me? Can I create that choice for myself? And hardship, how hard is it? Pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. So will I choose to accept this pain as true suffering? Or will I treat it like a hangnail? Will I move through it? Or will I allow it to turn me around and cause me to flee? Life is life, right? I've talked about this now, talking back um, or referring back to Alan Watts. Life is not what happens inside of us. Life, true life, is what is happening around us constantly. And we are either a part of that, and therefore we are truly living, because life is happening all around us and in and to us, as a consequence, or we spend all of our time thinking about what it means to be alive 
and therefore we turn inward on ourselves. We curve inward on ourselves in such a way that we are willfully blind to the reality of life, which is look around you, the trees that are in blossom, the gardens that are starting to produce vegetables and fruits, the grass that grows green and the dandelions that pop up golden yellow in the sunshine, the birds that land at the feeder and peck at the seed. All of that is life. That is life. That is the definition of life. So to ask yourself, what is the meaning of life? You have to close your eyes and turn inward in order to be blind to the reality of life. That's life. Life is what is happening around you and to you because it's happening around you. That's life. And really, in my opinion, once you become aware of this, once that is revealed to you, the rest of your life is simply spent disentangling yourself from turning inward on yourself and depending on your own thoughts and feelings to define life for you rather than just sit in your backyard and just be a part of life and enjoy the fact that you're alive and this is why you're alive and you live because the trees live and the clouds and the rain and the sky and the ground and the animals and the other people are alive and you are alive for them and they are alive for you. That's life. But the more you think about it, the worse life gets. The more you dwell on the meaning of life, the more you miss life itself. But freedom also means that one is prepared to sacrifice other human beings for his or her cause. And this is key, not excluding yourself. My wife and I have dedicated ourselves to raising our children, to creating a house, a home for our children that tracks along a very specific trajectory. And we are willing to sacrifice each other, and we do, to achieve that end. We are choosing to sacrifice Whatever it takes, whatever is necessary for us to raise our children, to create a home for our children in such a way that when we sacrifice ourselves and we sacrifice each other for that greater goal, that greater good, we believe, it's not a burden, right? It's not, uh, it's not a heavy yoke. It's not something that you groan and complain about. In the moment, you may groan and complain about the behavior of the children and they don't appreciate what you're doing for them. But the big picture is always there, which is, sure, we can complain and moan and whine about the behavior of the children in the present moment. However, we are striving toward a goal. We are sacrificing for a goal. And anyone who wants to join us in achieving that goal will have to sign up to sacrifice themselves to that goal. Otherwise, don't. That's the kind of freedom we have, though, that we have the choice. We can choose this trajectory. That doesn't mean that it's not going to change. And what I want to say, as you go, people change and circumstances change and things happen that alter your trajectory. And you have to adapt to that. You have to adopt 
a different tact sometimes. It doesn't mean that you abandon the goal, but it does mean that in the moment you have to accept that you wanted to go right, but circumstances dictate you go left. Sometimes in order to go forwards, you have to go backwards a couple steps and recognize, I made a wrong choice. I took a wrong step here. This was not the best way forward. Therefore, we have to take a step back and reassess as a couple, as a family, how do we keep going towards our goal? Because this wasn't the correct path. Freedom means that the manly instincts which delight in war and victory dominate over other instincts. For example, over those of quote-unquote pleasure. Delight in war and victory. In the episode on War and Warriors by Nietzsche, he talks about this. That he is their greatest ally and their greatest enemy when it comes to critiquing the soldiery and what they do and what is considered a vice or a sin amongst the soldiers and what is considered a virtue. And recognize that we are always going to be tempted by the pursuit of pleasure because it feels good to us. And anything that feels good to us, tastes good to us, appears to be good, delightful, pleasing to our eye, we are more than likely going to be tempted to chase after that because it makes us feel good. My professor at seminary was asked by a student, why we sin? Why do we sin, a professor? And he paused. He looked down at his notes for a moment and then he started to chuckle. And he looked up with this big grin and he said, because we like it. And everybody laughed. And then they realized he was serious. And that's the truth. The reason that we chase after pleasure is because we like it. If we didn't, it wouldn't be pleasing to us. It wouldn't bring us pleasure. War and victory must dominate those instincts. In fact, as he notes, these are manly instincts to delight in war and victory to dominate over those other instincts is to say to achieve victory, to win the crown, to get that cup, to get that medal, to have that sword placed in your hands, to raise the flag over the field of battle and claim victory. It's probably not going to be very pleasurable. Maybe after the fact, maybe before it, building up to it. But the actual fight the actual combat, taking fire, returning fire, calling in an airstrike, fighting for your life, fighting for glory, fighting for honor, fighting to test yourself. These are not pleasurable pursuits in and of themselves because they require sweat and effort and exertion. That's why so few people pursue well, war and, and, and the victory that comes from the fight. And in my opinion, they shouldn't enter into that glibly. It should not be an impulsive decision. You should be very sober, even if you're not aware of the realities of war, if you're not aware of the realities of what it means to get into a fight, at least respect the seriousness of what you have chosen to undertake. Because it is no small thing. Even if you're in a cage or a ring, and there isn't a referee, and there are rules. There is so much that is out of your control, so much that you don't have a choice about. And you must accept that. 
And you must figure out, what do I do with this fear and anxiety? What do I do with the butterflies and the knots in my stomach? What do I do with the lump in my throat? What do I do with my thoughts that won't slow down? What do I do about my sweaty palms? Hmm. Yeah. But after the fact, when war is over, when you've won the victory, is there some semblance of pleasure in being able to relax, rest, stop the fight for a moment? Sure, absolutely. It's a different kind of pleasure, maybe a dark kind of pleasure, but it's still pleasurable. We fight because we know that eventually the fight will be over. The clock will ring. The bell will ring, I'm sorry. The armistice will be signed. Peace will be declared, and we can go home and we can rest until the next fight, until the next battle, until the next war. And so we take pleasure in our moments of rest. We can look at the medals on the wall or the trophies. We can reflect on those who we lost, who didn't come home. And we can recognize that they're at rest, they're at peace now. And we are the ones left to carry the weight, to carry the burden of their life that will not be lived out. And that's a heavy burden. Because if you've touched death, literally, physically touched death, if you've had someone breathe their last breath into your face, if you've had to clean a body and prepare it to be taken away, There is a certain peace in that. It's a very somber, solemn affair. It's very quiet often. A lot is done without words. It's a very sensitive thing. And you walk away realizing that you were a part of something special. And yet you also walk away with the burden, as I said, of the rest of that person's days and years on your shoulders. So that in the present tense, you celebrate the fact that the fight is over for them. And to a certain extent for you. But you also have the burden now of living. And living a life worthy of their sacrifice. Living a life worthy of their spouse and their children. Or the children that they'll never have now. Of the spouse that they'll never have. Of the family and home they'll never have of the successes and failures that they'll never have. And now you have to carry that. But would you surrender it if you could? Would you relieve yourself of the burden if you could, if it also meant that you wouldn't remember them and that your life would be lesser than for having lost that burden? As Nietzsche notes, the human being who has become free spits on the contemptible type of well-being dreamed of by shopkeepers. By Christians and cows, females and Englishmen and other Democrats. The free man, he says, the free man is a warrior. 
How is freedom measured in individuals and peoples, he writes? According to the resistance which it must be overcome. According to the exertion required to remain on top. <laughs> the highest type of free men should be sought where the highest resistance is constantly overcome. Five steps from tyranny, close to the threshold of the danger of servitude. <laughs> As I've said before, every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m., I roll with my coach for an hour. And one of the things, well, the pretty much only thing that we work on week after week after week is my guard pass and my side control. My coach is 30 plus pounds heavier than I am. He's a first degree black belt. I am a purple belt who weighs less than 30 pounds uh, than him. And so trying to keep a first degree black belt who's 30 pounds heavier than me pinned to the mat, speaking of remaining on top, is a weekly pursuit for me. Because at some point, he's just going to roll over and sweep me and put me on my back. And then I got to try and work my way out from underneath him. And that is hard, sweaty, grinding work. The highest type of free men should be sought where the highest resistance is constantly overcome. No matter what it is, whether it's an actual fight, a sparring match, whether it be jujitsu, Muay Thai, whatever, or it's any aspect of your life where you have to remain on top. You've achieved a certain level of success in your vocation, in your relationship, whatever it might be. But how much now do you need to work at staying at that position and then continuing to grow from there, continuing to rise from there? According to the resistance which must be overcome, according to the exertion required to remain on top. That's freedom. That's how you measure freedom. So rather than aspiring downward, aspiring towards the lowest common denominator, the least amount of exertion that needs to be put forth in order to succeed, instead of seeing one's self as a victim, as being put upon by everyone around him or her, someone who runs away from responsibility and consequences, True freedom is measured by the type of resistance that has to be overcome in the pursuit of achieving your goal. As he notes, and as I just discussed, the pursuit of pleasure is appealing to us because it is the downward slope. Pursuing pleasure, it's like Bill Burr said, comedian Bill Burr talked about getting in shape, getting six-pack abs, requires a lot of work requires a very strict diet. Often you have to hire a trainer to get you through that because to get shredded, to get down to like 7 or 6% body fat or 4% body fat so your abs pop and your arms are all veiny, it takes a lot of work. He's like, you ever seen anyone try to get fat? No. You know why? Because you don't have to try. It's easy. You just sit on the couch and just shove food into your mouth and you get fat. It's easy. That's the pursuit of pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure is often extremely easy because it is the downward path. We already want to pursue it. It has a certain inertia of its own once we take a step forward. And then it becomes an addiction. And then in that case, it's not so easy anymore. But as long as it stops short of developing into addiction, yeah, pursuing pleasure is the downward path. It's like getting in a sled or a wagon and then just going downhill. 
So how much resistance are you overcoming? How much exertion is required to achieve your goals? To remain on top once you've achieved that goal? I'll use the same analogy from jujitsu. When I was a white belt, when I started, I just wanted to get to class twice a week. That's it. I had no other goal but to get to class twice a week. And I got smashed every class over and over and over again. There's one guy that I would roll with who would tap me three to five times in 10 seconds. Now I know, because I have experience, that he wasn't a very good training partner because he just liked to roll with me to see how many times he could tap me. And so I went from one class to two classes. And I thought to myself, if I can get to three classes a week, that would be amazing. And then eventually I got to three and then four and then five and then two classes at a time. And it just continued to grow and continued to change until I got out of the car last night after getting home from the gym and was thinking to myself, I actually teach and or train seven days a week, every week, month after month. I do this. And I'm 49 years old. I'll be 50 in a month or two months. Like, how did this happen? Five and a half years ago, I just wanted to get to two classes a week. And now I'm here. How did it happen? Well, it wasn't easy. <laughs> it required a lot of exertion. And there has been a lot of resistance the whole way from myself, from my teammates, from my coaches. The best kind of resistance, the kind that pushes you, that gets you fired up to come back and try harder next time and want to come to class and want to spar and want to compete and want to fight and want to grow and advance. But in order to get there and to remain in those, that spot, there's a lot of exertion required. You're going to have to go through breaks, muscle pulls, injuries, separations, dislocations, sicknesses, times when you can't train. You're going to lose more than you win. You're going to tap more than you get the tap. Sometimes, like I said, you're going to train for weeks and months and maybe even years advancing an inch at a time, one little movement at a time in the technique just so that you can stay on top, just so that you continue to excel at your vocation, your hobby, your passion, whatever it might be. If you think about a relationship, if you're in a relationship or you've been in a relationship, especially a long-term relationship, it's hard damn work and it doesn't get easier because at least in my opinion, to remain on top, so to speak, in the relationship, you have to constantly be striving to get better, to improve, to be a better listener, to be a better communicator, to be more giving, to be more forgiving to sacrifice more of yourself than you expect to get sacrificed to or for you, to give 100% of yourself to the relationship. That requires an immense amount of effort and work every day because you have to show up for somebody else every day. They need you to show up for them. And if you don't, they suffer as well. And then you suffer as a consequence because they are lesser than now too. The highest type of free men should be sought where the highest resistance is constantly overcome. Five steps from tyranny, close to the threshold of the danger of servitude. Because you're sacrificing yourself for others. 
You're sacrificing yourself for an idea, for a cause, for a person, a group of people. You're very close to being a slave because you're sacrificing yourself for others, maybe even in the defense of others. You're putting yourself between the prey and the predator. And so you're never far from tyranny, but also you're never far from servitude either. You have to maintain the proper balance. You have to live in the tension between wanting to become an authoritarian and dictating to others, this is what true freedom is, now do it or else. Or becoming a slave yourself, giving so much of yourself, even to those who don't deserve it, to those who exploit and pervert your charity, your kindness, your sacrifice. Because they want to make you their slave. And recognizing that's not good either because they're taking your freedom away from you. They're taking their choices away from you, your choices away from you. And as a consequence, when people come to you and demand that you give away your choice to them, that is, well, one step away from slavery. It's like we talked about in the last episode about Fight Club. All of these men left these support groups and joined Project Mayhem, became part of Fight Club. And then Tyler became not only their leader, but the sole authority behind Project Mayhem. So that the first rule of Project Mayhem is you don't ask questions. And the final rule of Project Mayhem is trust Tyler. Don't lie. Don't ask questions. Trust Tyler. Well, that's authoritarianism. That's in essence, or in effect, a dictator. So you reject one society that emasculates you and castrates you as men. But then you, you enter into another society, another kind of support group, where one individual dictates to you what it means to be a man, what it means to be a part of society, what it means to engage in true change and revolution. And you're not allowed to question it, which means you're not free. You're a slave. This is true psychologically if by quote-unquote tyrants are meant inexorable and fearful instincts that provoke the maximum of authority and discipline against themselves. That's a great definition of tyrant. Fearful instincts that provoke the maximum of authority and discipline against themselves. Because I am afraid of not having control over you and your decisions. Because I know that freedom is messy. And that you're not deserving of your freedom because you don't appreciate it the way that I appreciate my freedom. Your choices are stupid. Your your choices are juvenile. Your choices hurt me and affect me in a negative way. So the best thing for you is if I took your choices away and took your freedom away, and then dictated to you what true freedom means from now on for you. This is how you will think, this is how you will speak, and this is how you'll behave, and then everybody's better off for it. Why? Because I'm afraid of you. Because I can't control you. And so I want the maximum amount of authority and discipline. For example, he says, Julius Caesar. Now he says, this is true politically too. One need only go through history. The peoples who had some value, attained some value, never attained it under liberal institutions. It was great danger that made something of them that merits respect. Danger alone acquaints us with our own resources, our virtues, our armor and weapons. Our spirit enforces us to be strong. First principle, one must need to be strong, otherwise one will never become strong.
You have to decide that you're going to be strong. Otherwise, you will never become strong. It has to be a mindset. It has to be something you dedicate yourself, that you lock in as the focal point of your life. I am going to become strong. Now, how do I do that? And once you make up your mind to become strong, you can never back down from that. You can never go back from that. Because again, resistance, which must be overcome, exertion that is required in order to remain on top. That's true freedom. What does that require? It requires strength. Strength of character, strength of conscience, strength of body, soul, and mind, strength of effective communication, strength to carry a weight, not only one's own burdens, but others' burdens, the strength to sacrifice oneself for the sake of other people. How does one come to this? Through danger, through war, through victory. The free man is a warrior. So we could say, in essence, the free man is a warrior because he is strong. But he is strong because he is a free man and a warrior. And the reason he's free is because he is a warrior and he's strong. It's a syllogism. It's circular. You can't have one without the others. So he writes, those large hot houses, sorry, got all tangled up there. Those large hot houses for the strong, for the strongest kind of human being that has so far been known, the aristocratic commonwealth of the types of Rome or Venice, understood freedom exactly in the sense in which I understand it, as something one has or does not have, something one wants, something one conquers. I wrote this on Instagram months ago. In the history of civilization, freedom is very rarely if ever just given away. It has to be taken by force. Because when a person or people acquire, attain power, as Nietzsche says, once you have attained power, you are very unlikely to relinquish it to others, especially others whom you have decided and judged to be unworthy of receiving a piece of your power, a piece of your authority and influence. Instead, what happens is you try to consolidate even more power, more influence and authority around yourself. This is the very nature of tyranny. The more power I have, the more influence I have, the less likely there is going to be someone or something that can mess things up for all of us, especially for me. So I'll just take maximum authority. I will exercise maximum discipline in relation to others. And I will demand that you give me more and more because there are just more and more things to be afraid of in this world. Everyone and everything in the end could potentially kill you at any moment. And therefore, I'm going to need power and influence and control over everything and everyone that could potentially kill me, which is everyone and everything. This is the problem when we're left alone to think about life. Eventually, we start forming a list and the people closest to us and the things closest to us that are the greatest threat to us, the greatest danger to us, the people and things that scare us most make the list first. But then it continues to grow exponentially. And it works from a very tight circle of people and things to a broader and a broader circle until essentially it envelops the entire earth. One does not just come to freedom by accident. One is just not, here, here's freedom, enjoy the freedom. Even when... Slaves in the United States were set free. 
theoretically in 1865, Jim Crow laws guaranteed that they would not be free. They were free in name only. And so in order to be free, they had to take it for themselves. The children of the slaves and the grandchildren of the slaves had to make up their mind and had to decide for themselves, how free do we want to be? How much choice do we want to have? Because in order to be truly free, free like our neighbors, who are not the children and grandchildren of former slaves, in order to be that kind of free, to be considered fully human, to be free to marry whoever you want, to be free to live wherever you want, to get a loan from a bank, to sit at the front of a bus if you want, to drink from the same water fountain if you want, to be free to walk down the street without being attacked or lynched whenever you want. That kind of freedom is not going to just be given, it has to be taken. And this was the point of divergence between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Malcolm was much more convinced that the only way to truly achieve freedom for the black people was through violence, by taking it. Whereas Dr. King, of course, was about nonviolence and it being given. Two different philosophies, two different ideas, two different then approaches to organizing and activism. And I think they both had very good points. And I think they both had some really bad points. And I think you could have learned and can learn from both of them what the roadmap to true freedom should look like for all of us, can look like for all of us, and maybe in some instances must look like for all of us. And so in a way, one must take freedom. It has to be something that you want, and you either have it or you don't. If you don't have it, then you're going to have to go out and conquer in order to get it. But if you do have it, then you have to be willing to conquer others to retain it. Because as easily as freedom is attained, it can just as easily be taken away by others who are stronger than we are. That's the point of being strong, to be a warrior. Do you want to be free? Then you must be a warrior, according to Nietzsche. Because that's what a free man or free woman is, a warrior. Someone who is strong, and I would add in mind, body, and soul. It is someone who is ready to conquer in order to attain freedom or maintain freedom. But always five steps from tyranny and right on the threshold, close to the threshold of being a slave. I don't want freedom for myself. I want freedom for my wife and children. I want freedom for my teammates and my colleagues. I want freedom for my neighbors and my community. Because if they're free, then I can enjoy freedom too. But if I am free, enjoying my freedom, but my wife and children are slaves, my neighbors are slaves, my teammates are slaves, what is, what is my freedom to me then? What is it worth to gain freedom for oneself if it's at the cost of everyone else's enslavement? Or at the very least, the enslavement of those whom you love? To go back to the beginning, this is his point. The value of a thing sometimes does not lie in that which one attains by it, but in what one pays for it, what it costs us. To go to war for freedom, whatever that war looks like, requires self-sacrifice. And it will require others to sacrifice along with you. For you, but also for others. 
and the more who are willing to step up and fight for freedom, the faster everyone will enjoy freedom. Because that is how we gain choice, is by simply saying to those who empower, to those who are tyrannical, we refuse to listen to you. We refuse to bow to your authority. We refuse to participate in what you are doing to us. So we're going to take our freedom back. And if we have to, we're going to come up there. We're going to drag you out of your office. We're going to take you into the streets and tar and feather you or hang you. We're going to imprison you, put you on trial, whatever it might be. But we demand freedom. We demand choice. And we are prepared to do anything necessary to conquer this tyrant in order to gain our freedom, to attain our freedom. We're not willing to do that very much anymore in our society. We're much more given to pleasure. We are the Untermensch society. We seek the downhill path, the path of least resistance. Netflix and chill, for example. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. We are tempted by pleasure. We are seduced by pleasure. We are ruled by pleasure. Pleasure is our master, and she is a cruel mistress. Therefore, for those of us who do care about freedom, and I mean truly care about freedom to the extent that we are willing to do anything to attain it or maintain it, I think Nietzsche has a lot to say in a very short space with very few words, very powerful words though, that freedom comes through exertion. True freedom comes through going uphill, climbing the hill, pushing through, avoiding and ignoring and fleeing the path of least resistance. Because remember, as he said, what is freedom? That one has the will to assume responsibility for oneself. That one maintains the distance which separates us. That one becomes more indifferent to difficulties, hardships, privation, even to life itself. That one is prepared to sacrifice human beings for one's cause, not excluding oneself. Freedom means that the manly instincts which delight in war and victory dominate over other instincts. For example, over those of pleasure. The human being who has become free spits on the contemptible type of well-being dreamed of by shopkeepers, Christians, cows, females, Englishmen, and other Democrats. The free man is a warrior. The free man is a warrior. And I think that about sums it up. Is that in order to be a free man or woman, you must assume, you must attain and maintain a warrior mindset. You must be free. You must have a choice. You must be willing to conquer and take freedom for yourself from those who would deprive you of freedom. The tyrants of this world, whether they be the tyrants that rule in your household, in your churches, at the gym, in your schools, at work, in your communities. Recognize the tyrants, identify them, triangulate them, and then do what is necessary to gain your freedom from them, to attain it, and to maintain it. Maybe you can do it peacefully. Maybe it can be done through communication, conversation, debate. Maybe it's going to require you to walk out the door and kick the dust off your feet. 
maybe it's going to require you to literally break free of others who seek to enslave you because they like to control you. That's how they get their pleasure, is by controlling others, manipulating others. But if you want to be truly free, truly liberated from the thou shalts, to be liberated to live in the I can and I will, you have to be prepared to be strong, to push back and move through great resistance and exert yourself to climb the uphill path and not give in to the temptation to get in the little red wagon and push yourself and let the let the let inertia just take you down the hill. To be free, you have to be a warrior. And so what are you going to do today to advance that cause? What are you going to do today to attain your freedom? What are you going to do today to become strong, to become a fighter, to prepare for war, the war for your freedom? That is the question that Nietzsche poses to each of us. That is what he is forcing us to ponder today to take seriously today. And so I will leave you with that then, to think about today. And to say thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for subscribing. If you want to get the podcast sent to you via email, I always forget to do this part, you can go to the warriorpriestpodcast.wordpress.com and subscribe that way. And that way every episode comes out, it goes up on the Warrior Priest website on WordPress, and it'll show up in your mailbox. Otherwise, you can just go to Anchor FM, click the subscribe button, click the support button. Otherwise, wherever you listen to podcasts, click the follow button, and every time I have a new episode out, you'll get it. Other than that, I got nothing else today, so I'll see you next time, weirdos. Peace.